Welcome to Change Making Women, the podcast for women who make a difference. With Siada Bade in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Marianne Clements in London, in the UK. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Change Making Women. Tonight on the show, we're talking to Elena Prodota, who is a storyteller based in Scotland, in the UK. She's going to tell us why she's so passionate about telling stories, um, where those story, that storytelling has taken her, and uh, about a lot more besides. So welcome, Eleanor. Um, it'd be great if you could tell us a bit more about yourself. Um, what else do we, should we know about you apart from your love for stories? <laughs> cool. Well, I'm, at the moment, I'm mainly... Um, a creative artist in that my main form is storytelling mm-hmm. um, but I also do visual arts and create ritual and I've got a, I've got a number of different creative projects on the back burner but the storytelling and creating rituals and mm. visual art are mainly what I'm doing at the moment I've had a very varied working life but at the moment that's where my focus is yeah tell us a bit more about the kind of storytelling you do stories have always been really important to me mm-hmm. um fairy stories children's stories and the but also later um myth myth mythology and mm-hmm. legends yeah um and my my spiritual practice is pagan and a lot of my inspiration has come from um, stories like the Mabinogion and um, the stories of the Kailach and uh, Bridey and Angus in Scotland. For me, stories are very much attached to place and people, mm-hmm. and that it's very easy, particularly in the Western tradition of fairy tales, I think, to imagine that stories are things that float above life. Um, whereas for me, they're actually they're very embedded. So. I was actually at a uh, something called the called Good Crack, which is a storytelling evening in Edinburgh. Once I was there on Thursday, and I actually told a real life story. It that was fantastical, mm-hmm. and but it was also something that had happened to me. So I created a story, but that was very much located in where I live in mm-hmm. a very rural area of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, but hopefully in a way that connects other people to their own experience as well. Interesting. So maybe tell us a little bit more about um, where you live in Scotland and the kind of traditions. Because I think some of the things you mentioned, some of our listeners might not be might not be that familiar with around um, yeah, yeah, the sure. stories from that part of Scotland and stuff. It'd be interesting for people who are in different parts of the world to hear a bit more, maybe. To hear that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I live in a very rural part of southern Scotland, and I've lived here for 17 years. I'm not originally from Scotland. I'm originally from England. Mm. Um, and the stories 
of Scotland. They're not actually terribly well known, the traditional stories of Scotland. People tend to know the stories of Wales and Ireland a lot better. Mm. Uh, those, those who know any, any at all. Mm. Um, and the stories that I'm familiar the stories of Scotland tend to be, um, they're either stories about fairies, mm-hmm. and these aren't your pretty little fluttery Victorian nice fairies. These are scary trick you out into the moors in the mist and fog in the middle of the night and kill you fairies mm-hmm. so, <laughs> it's a very it's um so it's maybe not what people expect when they hear yeah. fairy story yeah yeah <laughs> um which i think speaks a lot to how um dangerous the landscape and the weather is in Scotland, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the stories about fairies are, are connected to fears about nature and um, illness and death yeah. um, and danger and all those kinds of things. Um, some of my favourite stories are the stories of um, the Kailach, who mm-hmm. is, which just means old woman in Gaelic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Um, who actually created the stories that she created the land Mm -hmm. but she's also the queen of winter who tries to prevent summer happening Mm -hmm. she tries to prevent summer coming every year Uh Um, and Angus and Bridie and Bridie's the queen of summer Uh and Angus is the Kailach's son Uh and every year the Kailach takes Bridie prisoner and forces her to work as her servant as her slave and Every year, Angus comes and rescues Bridie so that summer can happen. So it's very much connected to the cycle of the seasons. The stories, um, the story of the Carlach, Angus and Bridie, it's all about um, the Carlach has a hammer that she hits on the ground to make it hard as iron. So there's frost and, and she sends her wind hags with snow and hail and wind. And, and this is all... This, and this part of the story happens between February and May. So that's basically the weather between February and May is a big old battle between mm-hmm. um, the Kailach with her, her winds and cold and rain and hail and snow and, and frost and ice and Bridie and Angus with the sun and blue skies and gentle rain and rainbows and all that nice stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it's actually really helped to engaging with those stories has really helped me engage with my environment mm-hmm. um, in, a, in, a, in a deeper way, I think. Yeah. Um, kind of looking, looking at the environment through the lens of these old stories, which embody um, the knowledge and the wisdom that people had living in this environment for so long. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a common theme for stories, for traditional stories um, in many parts of the world, that they're not just for entertainment. I think one of the misconceptions that I think people have about stories, whether it's oral storytelling, whether it's novels, whether it's films, whether it's plays, is that it's just, it's quite just entertainment. But it's actually, there's a, there's a depth of knowledge and um, meaning in stories that even in the simplest story um, they, they embody 
um, information and wisdom about relationships, about seasons, about you know, the whole human experience of being human and of the more than human environment. Mm. I think and that my goal when I'm choosing a story, learning a story, telling a story is to hope to highlight some of those aspects with, you know, without bashing people over the head with it, mm. but to highlight some of those aspects that can help people deepen into their own experience um, and maybe reflect upon their life and their place in society and the environment in a new way. Um, I guess my, then my question will be throughout this journey, you know, of storytelling, what has been the most challenging part of it? I think one of the most challenging parts of it for me was recognizing myself as a storyteller and giving myself permission to actually say I'm a storyteller and to go places and tell a story for the purpose of telling a story. Because I've, I've told stories really my whole life. Um, and in a lot of my ritual work, my seasonal rituals, I will tell a story that's appropriate to the season. Um, so um, at, at Samhain, which is this Halloween, I guess, um, but it, it's the celebration of our dead, our ancestors, and everything that's gone before, and also the harvest, the physical harvest of fruit and vegetables. Um, I, will, I will often tell a story, um, a, a Welsh story, part of the Mabinogion at that point. And, but it hadn't occurred to me that I was being a storyteller mm. when I was doing that. And it actually took, I was teaching at a, a retreat two years ago. And it's a retreat that's is part of um, the reclaiming tradition, which is a, a, a feminist and activist uh, a spiritual tradition, um, a, a neo-pagan spiritual tradition. Um, and all around the world, there are these retreats that happen every year or every couple of years that are based around a story. And part of that, as, as part of the teaching team, I was telling this story uh, as part of the evening rituals. And somebody, actually one of the camp attendees came up and told me, said to me afterwards, you have a real gift for storytelling. And it was actually that gift from him telling me that, that, allowed everything to kind of click into place that oh I that's what I've been doing and maybe that's a lot you know maybe I'm allowed to do that um and then I found the, the there's a I'm very very lucky in Scotland we have a Scottish storytelling center mm-hmm. and they have an apprenticeship program which offers um free support and mentoring and training and development for storytellers around Scotland to develop our practice. Um, so that's really where I, I got going, was joining that programme uh, just over a year ago. So, uh, but finding, finding places to tell stories is a challenge, though. Yeah, interesting. Because I, I don't know if I run a... Very I, I, um, I, I don't really run a storytelling event anymore, but I... I started one with a friend of mine in London a few years ago and um, it still still exists and um, yeah, we created it. It, It's for telling um, personal stories more than um, Mm. 
more than telling you know stories that you've learned or or heard or been gifted or whatever but um mm. but yeah we yeah. created that it's sort of like a you know in an in the evening where people can come and tell stories from their life because yeah we wanted to mm. kind of make storytelling a um you know almost like going to any other evening event you know like come hear some yeah. stories and um yeah I, I was i was gonna ask you where you know where you tell stories it's interesting that you said that it's um it's not always that easy to find places so i guess yeah tell us where you do tell stories but also mm. where you'd like to tell stories <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um well at the moment most of the storytelling i do is in edinburgh mm-hmm. even though i live quite a way away from edinburgh because that's where the opportunities to still tell stories are yeah um so i get the chance as part of the apprenticeship program to be part of a, an evening performance of stories in the theater in the scottish storytelling center um and there are these open mic evenings uh called good crack and there's cafe voices which happen every month every couple of months i would really really like to start because because I live so very rurally and I have a, a chronic condition that makes travel difficult for me and very tiring. Mm. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to have to start something in my village, mm-hmm. which has like 300 people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was talking to somebody at, at one of the storytelling events this weekend. He comes from a similar small village in Cumbria. Mm. And she was saying that they started a storytelling club there and they actually get storytellers, quite big name storytellers from all over Britain and around the world coming to their little storytelling club. Mm. And I, I think, so that's like, oh, oh, maybe, maybe I could start something that, that could grow some legs there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, some of the things that I would really like to do, um, and, and I also still talk, tell stories as part of rituals and retreats. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I'd really like to do is to connect with people's own stories. So I work with, um, I, I volunteer occasionally with a, a local LGBT charity mm-hmm. um, in Dumfries and Galloway. Um, and there was an idea at, at one point to have, to bring people together to tell their stories because a lot of the people a lot of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people in Dumfries and Galloway are older people. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people's mental image of um, a person who's not straight or not cisgender is relatively young. Mm. Um, but actually, because it's a rural area, most of the young people actually go off to university or go somewhere else to a city to find um, jobs. So the people that are actually here tend to be older, retired, or, or can't work for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I think telling, weaving together people's personal stories mm-hmm. with traditional stories is something that I feel really strongly about exploring mm-hmm. because that, for me, the traditional stories are actually alive now in our own lives because they are they are about human experiences and, and human dilemmas yeah. even if they're fantastical stories yeah yeah they're about you know 
So bringing people together whose stories are maybe hidden. And in this rural context, that's, you know, LGBT people. Um, and there are minority ethnic people and communities here, but they're very small and very quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's, it's not like in a city where there's enough people to, to come together and form a, a strong community that, that can support each other and um, have a, a social strength, a cultural strength, mm. a collective strength that both because of the low population and because of the, the way people are spread out so much um, in this part of rural Scotland, mm. um, there isn't that strength of there isn't that sense of a strong community that you can fall back on that will have your back mm. if you need it. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, so so it's something that could help to support that weaving through stories, I think, mm. is something is, is where I'd like to go next, I think. Mm. Okay. It's interesting to think about stories as um, the things that hold communities together as well. That's, uh, yeah. I kind of like that idea and I also wonder like um, how you think that, you know, you've said a bit, but I'm, I'm just interested in exploring a bit more how you think that um, story sharing can make a difference, I guess. I think one of the most profound ways it makes people sharing their own stories makes a difference is it's twofold. One of them is from the inside of the person sharing the story. Mm-hmm. And one of them is from outside in the community of people they're telling telling the story in. Yeah. Uh, and the one from the inside is the is the validation of having their story heard, mm-hmm. having their experience recognised. And I think that's particularly powerful for people who have experienced shame or guilt around part of their story, mm. um, whether they're survivors. Um, of abuse, whether they're queer and were brought up in a, a community or a family or a context where that wasn't okay, um, or whether it, they're expressing a part of their experience that's very private, there's something very validating about that having that witnessed without comment. Yeah. Um, or simply with a comment about what was moving to people about the story mm. um, and then from from the the listener's perspective there's both the validation where they share an that they didn't maybe know that they shared there's a mutual validation there but also there's a lot of learning um, in that in hearing somebody's story if their experience is very different from yours. I remember I was at um, a workshop of training people in, in welcoming diversity and reducing prejudice. And one woman was sharing her story as a, I can't, I apologize to her in her absence that I can't remember which island she was from in the Caribbean originally. Um, but she was sharing her experience of her mother never being present because she had to leave to go to England to earn money to send back. And that's an aspect of um, immigrant communities experience within colonial, within the colonial system 
that had never occurred as a white person who was born and brought up in England that had never occurred to me and mm. simply her sharing her, her that single personal experience completely transformed the way I was able to think about the deep personal private impact of colonialism and um, the way money and power works globally mm. on on people's lives and experiences and how that impacts on how people are able to relate to each other um, or not relate to each other across difference. Um, you, mentioned some, uh, you mentioned something very interesting that you are practicing, uh, am I getting it correct? From yeah, paganism, <laughs> yes. Yeah, paganism? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, because to be quite honest, I've, I've, I've never come across anyone <laughs> who does. <laughs> it really, it really um, strikes, it strikes me because we live in a very judgmental world and every time someone, probably you tell someone uh, that, they'll be like, are you serious? <laughs> How has it been? First, um, was it like a choice for you? Um, uh, and perhaps why not to be so intrusive? Oh, no, that, that, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, in terms of whether I chose it, it that's a really interesting question. Um, because uh, my mother and my stepfather, when I was growing up, they were full-on hippies. They took me to all the stone circles and Iron Age hill forts we could get to. Um, and they grew all their own food and they were members of Friends of the Earth and active in CND. Um, so even though they weren't, even though they were, agno they were agnostic, I kind of felt like I had a pagan upbringing that I wasn't conscious of. Mm. And that's also what, I mean, that upbringing is also where I get my um, sense of the interconnectedness of things and what, how important it is to to reconnect people reconnect with the land so it, it kind of my activism and my spirituality come from the same place i think but i didn't actually recognize myself even though i'd been to full moon circles and spring equinox rituals and what have you and festivals um i didn't actually recognize myself as a pagan until i was training as an interfaith minister and the speaker on goddess traditions wasn't able to make the first year class. This was when I was in the second year. And the woman who was leading the course asked to deliver that class. And in the course of doing that, I read uh, The Spiral Dance by Starhawk. And I was reading it and I was thinking, hmm, that's how I experience the world. Huh, that kind of fits with what I believe. This is really interesting. So it, it wasn't until my late 20s that I, I actually realised, oh, I'm a pagan. And, and actually kind of followed that up, as it were. I mean, in terms of other people's reactions, I've generally been very lucky. Um, even though I live in a very rural part of Scotland, which most people wouldn't think would be very open-minded uh, to different spiritualities, it's actually in a place where there's a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. So it's, a, it's actually no issue within the village at all. I did, when I, one time I 
um, hidden my spirituality, I suppose, was I worked for a number of years for a Christian charity in uh, my nearest city. And my direct line manager, I think, would have been very accepting. But there were people, even, even though it was, it was a Christian charity that was open to contributions from people from other faiths and no faith, there were members of the board who I reported directly to who I think would have made my life a little bit difficult if they'd known about my spirituality and my faith. So that, that was a time when I did keep it to myself rather, which was, you know, it's a quite an uncomfortable situation to be in, to be aligned, to know that I'm a, I was aligned with that group of people in there. Um, it was a development education charity. So it was um, raising awareness about global development issues and why um, people in developing countries managing their own development and um, having trade not aid and all that kind of stuff was important so in those terms in social justice terms my values are very very aligned with all of these people but I knew that they would look quite askance at my spiritual practice and my faith which for me was complete is completely in line with those values um, they would have seen it as something very strange and um, maybe a little bit dangerous. So that, that, that was an interesting experience. I know that I'm um, very lucky in that since 2006, and who knows what's going to happen with Brexit, but let's not go there. <laughs> um, but since 2006, it's actually illegal to discriminate against people in the workplace or in goods and services on the grounds of their religion so since that point I've actually felt a lot safer to just you know be as out about my faith as I am about my sexual orientation you know it's like but I, who knows I, what's going to happen with Brexit <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like I want to ask that so if if you were because I'm if you were to describe what paganism is I'm interested in whether Ziada's understanding of it is different from mine. Just it's sort of an interesting mm. across different, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd be really interested to hear your description of what it is because I think it's something that we don't always have the same understanding of, probably. Yeah. Well, paganism is actually not one religion. It's a really broad umbrella term for a whole mm -hmm. load of different things. Yeah. That often share very little in common. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the Scottish Pagan Federation has three... Um, they're not exactly rules, are they? Anyway, three basic um, things to agree with to join them, which is a sense of kinship with nature, a sense of the divine that includes female as well as male, and or, or is beyond gender. Um, and a positive ethics so it's really kind of you know you don't have to be a member of any particular group yeah. uh, to agree with those things so that that's very broad but in, in more detailed terms paganism is kind of where a lot of different strands within uh, western culture meet um, so there's the romantic strand which is that 
a change happened after the Industrial Revolution in England, particularly, where nature, instead of being seen as this dangerous, scary thing that you wanted to avoid, um, became this beautiful, um, valuable, inspiring thing. Um, and, and part of paganism comes from that, that the romantic movement. Um, and someone who's written a great deal about that in relation to Wicca, which is one specific faith within paganism, is Ronald Hutton in a book called The Triumph of the Moon. So if anybody's interested, he, he's a professional historian, an academic, so it, it's an excellent book. Um, if anybody's interested in that, how the Romantic movement affected um, people's attitudes to faith. But then there's also um, the goddess movement is part of paganism, which is um, came out of feminism and was a way of valuing the female in a culture and a society where all sources of authority were male. And the ultimate source of authority, God, was seen as male. So looking for goddesses in ancient cultures, looking for echoes of the goddess within uh, Christian saints, all of that um, kind of looking for what is sometimes called the divine feminine. Now, I personally have a problem with that phrase, but we'll leave it there for now. Um, see seeking for the goddess in all those different places is also part of paganism. So you've got the romantic movement, you've got feminism, you've also got the occult, which is, isn't as scary as a lot of people think it is, um, which isn't to do with Satanism, um, which a lot of people initially think it is. It's actually to do with um, forging your own will which is, is a specific form of soul shaping and spiritual practice. It, it's, um, it's kind of the other direction to mo a lot of mainstream spiritual practices focus around negating the self. So denying self-denial and asceticism and reducing the self. A, a different approach is to actually concentrate on the self. Um, and the idea behind that is that um, God is, that there is a part of God. I mean, I, I guess that the simplest way of describing it is that there is a part of God in everyone. And it's about connecting your conscious self with that divine nature. So, so there's, and, and, and there are other strands as well. There's um, reconstruction reconstructionist uh, paganism which is trying to go back to the Norse traditions before Christianity or the Greek traditions before Christianity or the Irish traditions before Christianity and go to historical and archaeological records and try to reconstruct as closely as possible what people from those times did within a modern context. The part of you the uh, you talked about yourself as a storyteller and as a pagan and um, as a 
woman who's interested in social justice and as a queer woman and there are all these different pieces that we've talked about and I'm interested mm. in um first of all maybe like uh, um something the, the most important thing you'd want to share with our listeners and then maybe like what your um yeah I, they might be the same but the sort of a lesson that you've learned, you know, along mm. this journey um, that you've talked about some of, uh, to become, you know, seeing yourself as a storyteller and um, see, seeing yourself as a pagan. So as you've discovered these, almost, it sounds like, you know, parts of yourself have come forward. Like, what have you learned along the way that you'd want to share with our listeners? It was meant to be two questions, but maybe it morphs into one, I don't know. I think, I think the most important thing for me to slow down and to listen or whether that's listening because one thing I haven't touched on is very much is the chronic illness piece no, um, but listening to my body listening to my emotions listening to other people listening to the land mm. and the plants and the animals listening to people from through social media and to hear from people from really different cultural and social and economic contexts and also for me in, in the storytelling is listening to the story itself so when I my telling of the story but if it's a traditional story the story has its own life so but I think being able to being able to put anything of value out into the world for me relies very, very deeply on being present and listening and being open to what's there. Mm. Um, and I think that applies to the storytelling, to the religion, to activism, to art, to everything. I was going to say you didn't say much about your art, I realised. <laughs> but I was going to ask you to tell us about where people can find you and where you're active in, um, online and stuff. So maybe if you, you could wrap those together a little bit. and just Yeah, that. sure. Um, my, I, I do have a website. There's not a lot on it at the moment because um, I've taken a lot of stuff down because I feel like I'm, I'm in an... It, I'm, I've gone back inwards to an incubation period. Mm. Um, but my website is elinorprodota.com, mm -hmm. which is E-L-I-N-O-R-P-R-E-D-O-T-A.com. Yeah. And I also have a, um, a rather sporadic email newsletter, mm -hmm. which is stories, tales, life questions, what I'm up to. Mm. Um, which people can subscribe to from my web you can go to tinyletter.com forward slash I think it's Eleanor Predota. Mm -hmm. I'll just double check that. Yeah, it's tinyletter.com forward slash Eleanor Predota, or they can sign up for that from my website. And I have a quite an active Instagram account. Mm -hmm. But again, you can connect to that from and a Facebook page. But again, you can connect to those from my website. And one thing people might be interested in is I have a um, a page on my website of um, resources for living resistance, mm. which was partly what inspired me to start an email list because I kept I have all these 
So whenever I share something in my email list, so I've got National Coalition Building Institute, American Civil Liberties Union, links to Bell Hooks, mm, you know, various different yeah, confronting whiteness. Um, that's under that's under the um, it's under hashtag resist in my menu at the top of my web page. Certainly mm. wanting to add to that. So if people want to send me any links that they think need to be on there that aren't on there already, that would be fantastic. So before we wind up, uh, one last question. I always love just asking this question. If you're not storytelling and you're not doing your art, what do you do for uh-huh. fun? <laughs> Oh, I crochet. You cro- yeah. crochet. I, I crochet and I nap a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I bake. Baking's the other thing. Like, if you go to my Instagram at the moment, you can see the you can see my um, peanut butter and jams that I made earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go and take a look. Oh wow! Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you and really interesting. Yeah, a few different things that we've not talked about before on this show. So that's great. Thank you so much for being with us, and um, it's been lovely talking to you. Really enjoyed it. And our theme tune over and over was written and performed by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com.